Jesus, help me. Much to my surprise, those were the words that escaped my mouth on a snowy Friday afternoon in downtown Lynn, Massachusetts. At the age of 12, I I found myself flat on my back on Union Street, underneath a semi-tractor trailer truck. The engine I could see was above my head. I could smell the oil. I could feel the heat that was being generated. You see, my brothers and my cousins and my neighborhood friends, we had this tradition where every Friday afternoon we would head off to the Lynn Boys Club for an evening of swimming and basketball. And for whatever reason, I don't remember really, the group had already left without me, and so I was running to catch up. And it was snowing, and it was icy, and it was dark, and I was in a hurry. I was in such a hurry that I bolted across the street just as this massive truck wheeled around the corner. I was startled, and so I caught myself, but my feet went out from underneath me, my gym bag went flying, and I started sliding down the street just as the truck driver hit his brakes, and with all of the momentum and the ice, his truck continued to slide towards me. And I knew in that moment it was going to hit me, And that's when I screamed, Jesus, help me. I don't remember thinking. I just remember reacting as I was falling. And when I opened my eyes, there was that truck. And scared as could be, I was still happy to be alive. So whenever I think of this morning's scripture, Psalm 121, I remember that story. I remember the fear that gripped my heart that I was going to lose my life. And I remember the spontaneous and completely unrehearsed call to Jesus in my time of need for help. And I'm hoping that by the time I'm done sharing this morning that you'll understand why. Now, I'm a native New Englander, and I now live in Medford, Massachusetts. And this projected picture, I hope it's up there behind me, um, might look really familiar to you. Does anybody here recognize that picture? Sure, that's a picture of a car. Many of you guys are commuters going down Route 93, headed for Boston. This picture here is just outside of Sullivan Square. and, and, And you're headed into town. And you can see some of the iconic images of Boston. There's the Zakem Bridge, and maybe you can make out the Boston Garden, and if you peek carefully, maybe the Prudential Building. And your heart, when you see this, begins to anticipate that soon you're going to arrive in Boston. In fact, if the radio's on and the dropkick Murphys are on, you might crank it up just a little bit more to set the tone. Well, Psalm 121 is the second of 15 psalms that are collectively known as the Songs of Ascent. You see, it appears that each one of these 15 psalms were composed at at different occasions for different purposes, but then they were collected as a type of liturgy or a songbook for pilgrims who were making their way to visit the second or the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. If you remember, Israelites, as part of God's command, had three different festivals, Pentecost, 
Passover, the Feast of Booze, and every year they would go to the temple as an act of worship of Yahweh, their God. And as the travelers approached the city of Zion, as they started to make their way through these winding pathways, they would see the elevated temple and they would begin to anticipate their arrival and the promise that they were going to be able to worship God in a unique and in a very present manner. And so they would sing these psalms, the song of ascent along the way. Now this morning when we read this psalm, you notice that there's going to be two voices that we hear. The beginning starts with a very personal I, and then it's going to shift to a you, and it appears like somebody is speaking truth back to the original person. Scholars disagree whether or not this is a dialogue between, uh, say, a pilgrim and a priest who's answering him, or a king and his minister who's answering him, or maybe even a pilgrim who then is answering himself in a form of self-reflection and self-talk. But regardless of how you break that down, I think you're going to find that the truths that these voices together offer us are helpful to us as we consider Jesus as the true and greater guardian. And so I turn your attention to Psalm 121, and let's just read verses 1 to 8. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now here's the second voice. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We just bow your heads and, and I just ask, would you repeat after me as I pray? Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? You see, this particular psalm, while it was often sung as pilgrims were ascending up to Jerusalem, it probably was written with a different point of view. It probably was written for a pilgrim that had been to the temple, had had an opportunity to worship God, and was now anticipating returning home through a mountainous, hilly, Judean countryside. And so embarking on a journey, any kind of a journey, it can be full of expectation, but it can also be full of danger. You see, the safety and the security of the temple and being inside the walled city of Zion, to leave that meant exposure to a lot of different types of risk. There was lack of food, lack of water, scorching sun, frigid nights, narrow trails, steep cliffs, wild animals, violent robbers. And so our speaker assumes that he's going to need assistance that assistance is either going to be immediately in his next few steps or somewhere certainly along the way. And so the speaker doesn't name a specific fear, but there does seem to be the sense that there is at least some anxiety because the beginning of almost every trip 
has parts that are unknown. It's kind of like, have you ever been taking off on an airplane just before it leaves Logan Airport and you just have that twinge of anxiety just as the plane gets ready to leave? So I ask you in your journey through this life, pretending that you're on a journey and a travel yourself, what's your worst fear? When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground and you get ready to begin your day, is there any kind of an anxiety that comes to your mind? As you travel throughout the day, is there something that just kind of nags at your spirit? It causes you to worry. When you lay down at night, what prevents you from falling asleep easily? What keeps you up through the late hours of any night? What is, in fact, your worst fear? You see, we all desire safety. Self-preservation, it almost feels like it's hardwired into our nature. And so, to be honest, we all suffer from fear at times to one degree or another at different times in different circumstances. Now, fear as sort of a type of respect can help us. For example, we teach young children, the ones that we just dismissed, to be fearful of a stove that's on because we think it's wise to not touch something that's hot. But many times, fear paralyzes us. It sort of disrupts our daily walk. And, and so this morning, my first very simple encouragement is, let's consider our journey and let's properly identify the fears that we encounter. You see, on that snowy day when I was 12, I knew my fear. I was afraid I was going to die. Perhaps that's even a fear that we all share at one time or another. Maybe today death doesn't occupy your mind, but there's other circumstances that might. There's a really interesting study that I had a chance to read. It was published uh, last October by Chapman University. It's called A Survey of American Fears. And it looked into the fears of average Americans. And in a random sample across the United States, over 1,500 adults were asked about their level of fear in maybe 79 different categories of topics ranging from crime to disasters to personal anxieties. And from this survey, they produced this list that's behind me, the top 10 fears of 2016, for which the highest percentage of Americans reported being afraid or very afraid. You can see, for example, nearly 40% of those that were polled had fear around economic instability, whether or not there'd be enough for them in the future. And so it's not surprising that in this list there were lots of things they looked at, but themes of government and economy, crime and violence and illness and death all dominated the minds of the average American. You might find it interesting that uh, almost 10% of all the Americans that were polled were more afraid of zombies than they were of strangers, ghosts, and clowns. I don't know what to make of that information, but uh, I guess there's 7% of Americans are afraid of clowns. When we identify our life-traveling fears, when we acknowledge the challenges that confront us on the journey, when we're truthful about the risks that are awaiting us, here's the good news. It's at that point that we're in a position to look beyond ourselves and to ask the question, 
From where does my help come from? Just like the psalmist. And so my prayer this morning is that each one of us takes an opportunity and examines our heart and and accurately names our fears and finally recognizes our need for help. In the face of fear or anxiety or worry, what solutions have you tried? What have you depended upon? See, in order to control the risk of a chaotic and a broken world, where do you place your confidence? Perhaps, if it's economic instability that you fear, maybe it compels you to work harder, to earn more, to build some investments. Those are all worthy goals, but even with all of that effort, you find yourself still worrying. Maybe potential illness grips your heart, and so it causes you to watch your diet, exercise a little more, take multivitamins. Again, all good prescriptions. But even with that effort, you still find yourself anxious. Maybe loneliness and isolation scare you. And so you create lots of relationships. You fill your Facebook page with tons of friends. You run from event to event to event, all fine in and of themselves. But even with all of that effort, in the quiet of the night, you're still fearful of personal rejection. When there is a threat or a stress or a strain in your life, where do you look for help? The pilgrim in our psalm today makes it clear. See, as soon as he asks that question, he then preaches truth right back to himself. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. His confidence is grounded in the recognition that everything that he could see was brought into being by his creator God. And any of the good and the noble strategies that he could rally to sort of overcome those challenges, in comparison, they paled when held up against God's majesty, God's power, and the care of the one who ultimately made everything. And so it's at this point that this second affirming voice pipes in the psalm. He says and reminds us of that the very nature of who this creator God is. And he brings me to my morning second encouragement. And that is we need to hear the character of God and as a result, be assured. You see, the second voice reminded the pilgrim and it reminds us that God, Yahweh, is the guardian of his own. And when he's confronted with any of life's difficulties, he can be assured that Yahweh is vigilant. Look at what he says. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh, the psalmist suggests, is like a shepherd who guides safely and he watches over Israel. Except unlike human shepherds or maybe even other pagan gods, this God, this Yahweh, this creator never sleeps. He is never out of the sight of Yahweh. 
Yahweh has, if I can coin a phrase for all our IT people, no downtime. The second voice reminds us that he's the same God who led Israel's father Abraham out of Babylon and brought him to the promised land. He's the same God who led Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, over as a nation, walking before them as a pillar by cloud at night and a pillar by fire during the day. He's the same God that, who once again rescued his people from exile and brought them back from Babylon to the promised land where they could worship in the second temple. And people get this. He goes on to say that just like the God who watches over the nation Israel, he watches over you. Personally. Very personally. We're told the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. I love what Pastor Tanner said a few weeks ago. He said, we rarely refer to God as our keeper, even though we all have an expiration date. Think about your refrigerator. If you take a jar of mayonnaise out of the refrigerator for long enough, especially in August, what do you have? A stinky jar of mayonnaise, right? Take me. Take you. Take us out of the watchful and personal care of our keeper. And what do we have? The psalmist said, the Lord is your keeper. Now sometimes, one of the tricks that Hebrew poets can, can use is, is to tell us what they consider to be like the important part of what they're writing. Uh, I remember in, in, in high school, I had to write theme papers, and you almost always started with a strong first sentence, right? Hebrew poets like to put their most profound thoughts in the middle of their poetry. It's just the way that they signal to the reader, this is what I want you to know. This phrase, the Lord is your keeper, it comes right in the middle of Psalm 121. There's 58 syllables that come before it. There's 58 syllables that come after it. And it's like the psalmist who's writing is yelling at us and saying, pay attention. This is what I need you to know. Listen to me. Seize this truth. This watchful God of Israel that we've read about, he's got his eye on you too. As we learned last month when we were navigating through Jonah, this is the same God who heard Jonah's prayer from the belly of a great fish, and he didn't put Jonah on hold. He didn't ask Jonah to leave a voice message so that he could get back to him. He was there ready to answer, and he's the same God, the psalmist suggests, that is there for you. This watchful God of Israel, the psalmist suggests he's got your back. He goes on to tell us sort of how comprehensive this protection or the safekeeping nature is. He says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. I think we all, especially because it's summer here in New England, can acknowledge that scorching heat can be an ever-present danger, especially in the Middle East, and the risk of thirst and sunborn, sunburn and, and sunstroke are real. An Israelite going into battle would carry his shield in his left hand for protection, but that would leave his right vulnerable and open to attack. And so 
in the Israelite army, he'd have to depend on the soldier to his right for his safety and his security. If he was constantly worried about whether or not he was covered on the right, he had no ability to confront what was in front of him and to fight the battle that was before him. The psalmist here says, God, our keeper, he's got your flank. You don't have to worry about the dangers that exist because this right side, it's covered. You can pay attention to what's in front of you. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. And poetically, this can mean a whole lot of different things. Um, it could refer to the idea that pagans uh, during the time of Israel believed that the sun and the moon and lots of other things actually embodied gods or were at the very least symbols of their worship. So some people think it's his way of saying you don't have to worry about that. Um, for some, I just said physical danger from the sun is real. And, and actually, there's thought that mental danger from the moon, you, we get the term lunacy or moonstruck, can, can kind of mess up your mind. So body and mind might be at risk. But I think what the psalmist is really saying is this. Yahweh's guardianship, it's total and it's complete. That he's on duty 24-7, 365, against perils that you know and perils that even when you're asleep, you can't possibly be aware of. It's sort of like saying, I've, if I say to you, hey, listen, I've got you covered from Massachusetts to California. You know I mean the whole of the United States, right? Or if I say to my wife, I love you from head to toe, it means I, I love everything about her. That's what the psalmist wants us to understand. So let me ask you, um, how does this type of a personal, constant, total watch care compare with so many of the other things that we place our confidence in today? Make a checklist in your own mind of the things that you feel like you depend on. doesn't really stack up, does it? And even after doing that, if, if we're not assured, the psalmist comes back and he, he drives his point again by repeating for a fourth and a fifth and even a sixth time the use of the image of keeper, of guardian. Look at verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Notice that the psalmist shifts his reminder from the present, which we all hope for, to the future. Will keep is repeated three times. And your life, it's a many, many-sided word. It means here your whole being. Everything that makes Jerry well, Jerry, and everything that makes Dan, Dan. God's guardianship covers the whole of existence, coming and going, not just our present circumstances. It covers where you go. It covers what you do. Think of it as your journey through life as a pilgrim here on earth. I do think we need to just stop for a moment and have just a point of clarification, however. Does this text mean that if you're a Christian that you are exempt from suffering? 
As a follower of Christ, are you prohibited from feeling the effects of living in a broken world? Um, the pain, the problem of pain, it's a profound obstacle for many people to approach Christian faith. And for Christians, sometimes that can be a point of confusion in their walk. And so I don't have enough time to fully develop this, but can I just offer two thoughts from two authors that I really respect? One says, life exposes people to a great variety of mishaps, but none, circled, are beyond God's sheltering care. And my other favorite author said, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. In other words, God's presence in our suffering is guaranteed. And he will equip us to move through that suffering. Because God's vigilance is over the totality of our life. And, and I do think that we need to be careful of the danger of claiming promises for health and for wealth and freedom from suffering as though they're demands on God, like he has a contractual obligation that we can prevail upon him. It kind of, if you think about it, places us in charge of God instead of the other way around. And so we have to remember that not every promise that's made is experienced in the now. Let me give you an example of that. I can think of a very, very faithful uh, sister in Christ. Uh, her name was Betty. And Betty was confronted and she ultimately surrendered on this side of eternity to her battle with cancer. I executed her will. I cleaned up her paperwork. And, and as I was doing that, um, I discovered a diary. And in her diary, she had cataloged her last several years of fairly difficult suffering physically. But she had cataloged on a daily basis in great detail the mercies that God had been providing to her and the presence that he offered her every single day. The last time I saw her, uh, we talked and, and we prayed and she assured me that the next time I saw her, she would be like new. A promise that she expected would be fulfilled on the other side of eternity. Now, time doesn't allow me to go into greater detail, but, but that makes me think of the 10th chapter in the book of Hebrews. There the writer, he detailed all of the suffering and struggles that followers of Christ had endured on this side, and he encouraged them with these words. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, we would be wise to hear the promises and then place our trust in the promise maker even as we anticipate the fulfillment of those promises. The timing of fulfillment of promises that are made to us may be now. It may be ultimately, but we can rest assured that they will all come to pass because he, the scriptures teach, is a faithful guardian. My prayer for us this morning is that when we hear of God's character, that we're assured 
that it gives us confidence. And that brings me to my third and, and sort of my final encouragement for us this morning. To experience that ultimate safekeeping of the promise maker, you must trust God and you must trust the good shepherd to keep you. You see, throughout the Old Testament, ancient Israel understood that God, their guardian, was like a shepherd looking after them. We talked about that earlier, his flock. Then in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and he makes a startling claim that troubled a lot of religious leaders in chapter 10. It says here, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. In first century Palestine, a typical shepherd would probably look after 20, 40, maybe 80 sheep. His day would be consumed by caring for them, leading them from pasture to pasture, watering them at springs and watering holes, feeding them so that they were healthy and nourished. He was their guardian. A shepherd was their keeper. Nighttime was unsafe out on the hillside. And so a good shepherd would find them shelter so that they could rest in safety. Sometimes the shepherd would be able to take his flock back to the village and maybe they'd be placed in a sheep pen. But the gate would always be locked and closed as a form of protection. Many times, however, that option really wasn't available. And so a small cave or a small enclosure out in the fields would have to suffice. And so in that case, the shepherd would herd his sheep into the cave through the opening. And then a good shepherd, the kind of shepherd that Jesus claimed to be, that shepherd would lay himself across the cave opening so that his sheep couldn't wander out. And any lurking predator, whether it was a violent man or a wild animal, would have to go through him get to his sheep. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd. He said that he knew his sheep. He said that they could know his voice. He said that he would lay down his life for them. But to experience his protection, what must the sheep do? They'd have to go through him, the gate. To have safekeeping, they would have to come into the pen or the cave. Whoever enters through the gate, Jesus said in John 10, 9, would be saved. And so coming in through the gate, in this instance, is a picture of what we call salvation. It's a place of safety. 
going in and out of the sheepfold and ultimately having an abundant life. This is what John 10.10 means when he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. A full or an abundant life is one that is rich in fellowship with God. It's a life that's so full, listen, that it can't be destroyed by death. It's a life of abundant grace found in the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning is that each person within the sound of my voice is living that kind of a life, one where they experience the fullness of the protection and the guardianship that's found in Jesus, the good shepherd. Well, you may be sitting there and you may ask yourself, well, what does it look like to be fully convinced that God is your guardian. Well, I'd expect that you'd consider your life's journey. We talked about that a little bit. I'd expect that you'd identify your fears, your anxieties, the risks that you face. I would guess that if you wanted to be fully convinced of the guardianship of God, that you would expose yourself to hear the truth about his character and his nature his constancy, his watchfulness, his protection. And if you were fully convinced, I would suspect that you would share that with other people, realizing and recognizing that there's room in the sheepfold. And finally, I'd suggest that you would trust Jesus, the good shepherd, as your true and greater guardian, no matter what. So here's, here's a simple real-life example. When I first met my wife, Teresa, she had benefited greatly from the generosity of her mother, Evelyn. And this was welcome to Teresa because like lots of people in their teens and 20s, she was still learning how to steward her finances. And she'd always seen her mother as what she called her financial safety net. This continued even after we got married, and it lasted actually up until the day that Evelyn finally passed away. And when Evelyn passed away, it sort of forced Teresa to ask a question that I ask you to consider this morning. What do you do when the brokenness of this world steals the power of something that you thought could protect you? See, Teresa confessed that besides just the grieving of the loss of her ongoing relationship with her mother, she also experienced a second emotion, and that was the fear of the loss of her safety net. You see, she had placed her confidence in her mother's continuing generosity and her capacity to always be there. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it was a fake substitute. She recognized over time that dependency on her mother was misguided and ultimately bankrupt. It needed to be dependency on Jesus, the good shepherd. And so she made that transfer, and as a follower of Jesus, she placed her confidence in Jesus' generosity and in Jesus always being there, just like her mother was reflecting to her. And so I ask you, that's Teresa's story. What's your story? Where's your confidence? 
What really keeps you? What is your safety net? Is it there when you sleep? Is it available to you when you're out and about? Will it be there today? Next week? Next year? How about eternity? Will it hold up under the pace of eternity? I'm going to direct your attention to the slide that I'm hoping is above me. At the temple in Jerusalem, there's 15 steps that lead from the outside up until the temple. And so in order to get into the temple, you've got to go up these steps. And so all Jews, men, women, priests, would come up these 15 steps as they entered into the temple. One tradition says that when pilgrim travelers reached the temple that they would stop and sing one of the 15 songs of ascent as they stepped on each of the 15 steps leading into the temple. So, for example, on the first step, they would stop, and then they would sing Psalm 120, known as the Pilgrim's Start. When they finished, they'd go on to the next step, and then they would then sing Psalm 121, the, the psalm that we read this morning. And then when that was done, they'd go up to the third step, and they would sing Psalm 122, the joy of arrival. And they would do that and so on and so on until all 15 steps had been climbed. And by the time they had sung the 15 psalms, known as the songs of ascent, and climbed these steps, they were ready for worship. I'm going to invite our worship team to come out and join me. And as they're getting themselves ready, in the same way, I'm going to ask you to imagine that together we've traveled through those winding passageways to the temple. And that together we're now standing on the second step of the temple, ready to share Psalm 121 as an act of worship to Yahweh, just as the scriptures encourage us. And so by faith, let's encourage each other as we read this together. I'm going to ask you to stand right now with me. So as we stand, I want you to imagine that we're here together on that second step. And I'm going to read, and I want us to share and say this together. And then when we're done, please remain standing. With me, please. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore.